Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-409 of the Run Run Live podcast. With any luck, I'll be able to publish this before I jump in my truck and drive up to Burlington, Vermont for my next marathon. This is the Revenge Marathon, right? It's go time, and I'm stressed out about it. I've held my weight, I've held my conditioning, coming into the race in good shape, on paper anyhow. Yeah, it's about a three and a half hour drive from my house. I'll drive up there tomorrow. Vermont Cities, I am told, is a much more reasonable course than Boston. I've never run it. I interviewed the race director way, way, way back in Run Run Live version 1.0 or 2.0. Supposedly they have fewer hills. And my training buddies tell me that it has always been a good race for them. It still stresses me out. <laughs> Age graded for my goal, I'm targeting times now that are faster than I ever ran when I was younger, if you believe age grading. So it looks like the weather is going to be maybe a little dicey. The race starts at 7 a.m., so I, you know, you shouldn't have to worry about the heat, but they're calling for rain showers and thunderstorms and stuff like that. Maybe some swirling wind with that, but it doesn't matter. I'm committed. I go into these things, I fight them all the way down. Marathon's a long race. You never know what's going to happen. And it's a bit of a figure-eight course, and I'm not sure how sheltered it is, but the figure-eight, by definition, means you're going to have as much headwind as you have tailwind as you have sidewind. I'll find a pace group, and I'll stick with it, stay in the shadow of a pace group. I need a 335 to requalify, and it looks like they have a 330. <laughs> So I'll have to decide whether I want to hang with them or just freewheel. You know, 10 seconds a mile, yeah, doesn't sound like a lot, but it could be significant. And I'd much rather negative split than burn out, so we'll have to see. Frank, um, Frank's not coming up, but Brian's going, my training partner, Brian. And I know he's aiming for a sub-330, so I'll see what his pacing strategy is. Maybe I'll camp on his heels. Especially if there's going to be wind, we can work together. And speaking of camping, I'm camping in a park on the lakefront up in Burlington. 
And like I said, it's a, a trick. That's Lake Champlain, by the way. Yes. A Canadian lake, a French Canadian lake. It's so this is camping is a trick I learned in my mountain bike racing days. I'm quite proud of this ability to just show up, pitch a tent and sleep. So frankly, I don't think those hardcore mountain bikers are house trained, most of them. So they need to sleep in a tent. So I've got a tent, a mattress and a mattress pump in the back of my truck. And, you know, you don't sleep much the night before a race anyhow. Eyeballing the map, it looks like I can walk to the start from where I'm camping, so it's going to be good. Like I said, Brian's going to be up there somewhere. I think he's bringing his son with him. And I get the option to stay over a Sunday night. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. We'll see how I feel. We'll see how uh, deeply I get into the post-race celebration. We'll see. I can't wait to have this over with. (laughs) I'm really sick of road racing and training. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do if I miss my time. I might just hang it up. I might just move on. I mean, what would you do, right? Do you think 21 Boston Marathons is enough? Or will my life totally unravel if I remove this prop from under the infrastructure? Today, we have a great interview with Julie, the marathon goddess. You know Julie. She's the California girl. Can I say girl? I can't say girl. The California lady from the movie The Spirit of the Marathon 2, which is not an awful movie. You should see it if you haven't. And the reason it's not an awful movie it is that it has a cast of characters in it. It's about all these people in the lead up to the Rome Marathon. And Julie is one of those characters, and she offsets nicely the, the crunchy old Italian guys that are in the movie. And in section one, I'm going to talk about some things I learned in this last training cycle. New things. Always learning new things. And in section two, I'm going to talk about the wild and wacky English language. I'm going to set power of now aside for a while because that was getting on my nerves. And since we're talking about English language and the Boston Marathon, I have a question for you. What is another Perfectly good word for unicorn. Huh? Monoceros. Isn't that a great word? Monoceros. Here's another one. Did you know that the word cadence comes from the same Indo-European root as cadaver? Same Latin root meaning loosely to fall. And cadence is the footfall and the cadaver is the fallen one, so to speak. So next time you can't keep up your cadence and you feel like a cadaver, you'll know why. Oh, and I have a redaction from my last show. My childhood friend Dave, he didn't die. He's living in Seattle, I think. His older brother, Eric, who I went to school with, he passed away. So rest in peace, Eric. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. What I learned from this extended training cycle. Number one, you can always go deeper, but there are diminishing returns. I went deep this training cycle. My target, or more appropriately, retarget race at Vermont City's marathon coming up this weekend will mark over seven months of work. 
That is probably the longest sustained training cycle I have ever done. And I use that time to periodize my approach, which means that you work on different aspects of your training in different periods. I slowly started losing the extra weight back in October, consistently stretching, slowly building up my speed work. It has been an approach designed to take advantage of my strengths, patience, maturity, and experience as a runner. And it's been an approach to minimize my weaknesses, age, and chance of injury. And by stretching out the cycle, I could work into the quality and volume that I needed to get to that next step to a higher level of fitness. And this all worked a plan in the sense that I'm hitting training paces that I haven't seen in a decade. And on paper, I'm as fit as I've ever been. But there are diminishing returns. The fitness bump I achieved through this long cycle was not revelatory. I'm nowhere near what I ran in my 30s or 40s. The training cycle has been all-consuming, affecting my life balance more than it has in the past. And the bottom line is, yes, you can always go deeper, but your benefit may not outweigh the investment, that incremental investment. When you get out on the long tail of your physical abilities, the incremental benefits are much more expensive, physically, emotionally, and lifestyle-wise. Number two, and this is a this was really a new one for me. You can stretch too much. You can stretch yourself into injury. This is a classic case of if a little is good, a lot must be better. So I was having very tight hamstrings and quadriceps coming out of the summer, and that really affected me in my fall marathon. So I decided over this long cycle, hey, I'm going to fix that. And I decided to stretch every day. I ended up giving myself tendonitis, first in my knees from the quad stretches, and then in my high hamstring attach points from the hamstring stretches. I was doing static stretches. Those repeated static stretches did stretch the muscle tissue, but also overstressed the connective tissue. I'm now doing less static stretching and more strengthening and rolling for those muscles. Static stretching isn't bad per se, but you need to balance it out with other forms of stretching, strengthening, and PT. Be cognizant of what you're stretching. Muscles are tissues that can be broken up and stretched in a certain way. Tendons and connective tissue need to be cared for in a different way. Number three, doing the work doesn't always guarantee your success. The race doesn't care what kind of shape you're in. The Boston Marathon really doesn't care. And doing the work just buys you a ticket to the starting line. And when you're cutting your race times as close as I am, there isn't much wiggle room. You don't get to write that story. A lot of the result still rests with fate and circumstance. K, Sarah, Sarah. And number four, this was a new one for me as well. Being skinny doesn't make you popular. I lost enough weight to be considered skinny. I've held that weight for a good three to four months now. This isn't a dead cat bounce. I've adjusted to having to cut new holes in my belts and to have 
even my skinniest pants falling off me. And this is a bit of a revelation for me. I've always carried that extra weight. I've always scoffed at the government weight tables that said I should weigh 165 to 170 pounds for my height. Ridiculous! I'm just not built that way. Guess what? Turns out 165 to 170 is a perfectly valid weight for me. Here's the catch. There is not any extra joy in finally weighing in at this weight. You see, I always thought if I could just lose that extra 10 pounds, my life would change somehow. I'd have more energy. I'd be faster. Men would be jealous. Women would swoon over my sleek physique. But guess what? I'm just the same person, just a little bit scrownier. The same person with the same life, the same challenges, the same demons. And I'm not sure I even like this new shell. Now I'm terrified to buy new clothes. Something new to worry about. So let this be a warning to all of you who have lived a life saying, if only, if only the weight, if only the hair, if only the height, if only the voice, if only whatever failing you have latched onto. It's not true. You are you, and you'd be better off figuring out how to live with that. <laughs> Number five. There is really no honor, or I guess I would say there's less honor, in sacrificing to a personal goal. And with all this training, the thing I miss most from going this deep, this monk-like into a long cycle, is all the events and the interactions I missed. I subjugated so much interaction and engagement to the training. I miss the races. I miss the people. I miss the easy miles with my friends. I miss my dog. But that's another story. You can always go deeper, but be aware of what you're giving up and what you are giving it up for. Be careful not to mortgage too much of the journey for that goal. And number six, there really is no destination. In the quiet moments leading up to the race, I wonder what I'm going to do when I don't do this anymore. Have I associated so much of my ego, myself with this training in the Boston Marathon that I have lost myself? What does life look like without this training? When the journey becomes a little too closely aligned with the ego, too needy? Does that not sully the worthiness of the effort? And is there a way to change this journey to make it more worthy? And I think there is. That is what I learned from this cycle and this season of my life. And I would suggest that you can observe your own cycles and seasons. You can learn a lot about yourself, life, the world, the universe by observing and what do you see when you look? And now for today's featured interview. Julie? Uh -oh. Hi. Yeah, give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you're doing. Well, thank you. My name is Julie Weiss and also known as the Marathon Goddess. And in 2012, 2013, I ran 
and completed 52 marathons in 52 weeks to raise money to help cure pancreatic cancer in honor of my dad because sadly I lost him in 2010. And since then, I've been on a journey to raise hope and awareness and inspiration. So far, we've raised over $500,000 to cure this disease. And I'm not done yet. So just recently, I finished my book called The Miles and Trials of a Marathon Goddess, 52 Weeks, 52 Marathons. And the book is as much about what happened leading up to those 52 marathons and as well as what happened afterwards. And I think it's uh, very, I try to use my book as uh, to relate to others who may have been going through some of the same things that I went through, but not necessarily that you have to run 52 marathons in 52 weeks to overcome that. Or, But it's just something like, it suggests that there's a backstory and what happened before the 52 marathons and everything that went into it and then what happened afterwards. So I hope to yep. uh, reach not just runners, but non-runners as well. Yeah. So believe it or not, you're not the first person I've talked to who's done 52 marathons in 52 months. People do this sort of, well, not everyone, you know, it's a very small percentage of the runners in the world, but people do this sort of thing. And folks I talked to, Julie, Frankly, they said the running part was the easy part, and the hard part was the logistics and the travel and just not getting any sleep and having to fly around the country, right? I would agree with that. And when I set out to start this journey at the time, I had only known of one person who had done it, which is where I got the idea from, um, and that's Dane Rauschenberg. And we know Dane. You, yeah. You probably also know uh, the guy from uh, Operation Jack. Um, oh, who yeah, did Sam. it in great guy. Yeah, uh-huh. Sam. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. I've run with him before. It's uh the travel is the hard part, the sort of when everything goes sideways in the in the organizational skills, right? That's right. And having to work a full time job in between when raising two kids sort of was really, really harder than the marathons itself. And my kids were older, but some people didn't realize that and thought that I just, you know, locked them up in the basement when I went and ran. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) They they were older, but still, they were like, okay, when are you coming home? We need this, we need that. But I think they're proud at this point, although they may not have been it, but it's all good. We did it for the greater good. And so I thought, why not do something to continue the journey, but not necessarily kill myself in the process. So I decided to run another 52 races this year, not full marathons, but races, just one race every single week, doesn't matter what the distance is, but to continue to raise awareness and funds to help find that cure and also um, get my book out and help inspire the world with this story because it's not really just about running. It's it's more about transformation and, and triumph. So... I'm hoping to reach a wider audience by revealing certain aspects of my life that are relatable. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to tease out here, Julie, so I'm going to try and find a way to get through all this with a a sensible path here. But I think a lot of people might recognize you if they ever watch that movie, The Spirit of the Marathon 2, and all that's in your book as well. But that movie was sort of very successful because it was character-based, right? The people in the movie, the little Italian guys with the pizza place, you and all the other people, they were carrots, right? Like any good movie or any TV show that you could relate to. And you stood out really as a character. You were very well defined as a character in that and talking about your journey for your dad 
and all that stuff. So people might remember you from that. And I certainly, I still have that clear memory of you from that movie, right? Only having probably seen it once. I also clearly remember that part where the little Italian guy turned to you and basically said, would you stop talking, please? I clearly I, remember I, that. Of course, I remember that. That's like everybody's favorite part of the movie, her favorite part. Because <laughs> I really didn't know what he was saying. I had no idea because he was talking in Italian. He was speaking in Italian, using hand gestures. And I didn't know. I thought, okay, I'm just going to talk back and I'm going to use hand gestures as well. And it wasn't until uh, they started the the edits that I found out what he said and I was like, Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a California thing, right? So, uh, <laughs> I've been trapped, you know, trapped next to, uh, California women on airplanes before. And I understand. Well, there's that. And there's also like, you want to have fun when you're running. I know some people like will have fun after they're running after they get the time they wanted. But for me, since it was not just about speed, it's about finishing and having fun and raising awareness. I, and I also had a camera on me for 26.2 miles. So it's like, if I didn't talk, it would have been really boring. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's part of what you bring to your audience and to the sport is that you're telling folks that this marathon stuff, this running stuff, isn't just about gritting your teeth and running up the hill as hard as you can. It's about having fun and having a purpose and being in the moment, right? I think that's a valid and really good message that helps bring people into the sport. Well, thank you. I I truly believe that. And it's, you know, it's not that serious. We are not elite runners out there. We're doing something that is wonderful and healthy and positive. So you might as well bring a little fun to it. Don't take it too seriously. Don't let it kill you. Go out there, do your best and have some fun. Absolutely. Yep. Your narrative from the challenges you had when you were younger, the, the death of your father and, and all that stuff is uh, another thing that humanizes, right? It humanizes the sport and it just underscores the fact that anybody can do these sort of things, right? People can do way more than they think they can. And, Absolutely. And when they, they hit that transition point, it's a transformation, right? So I think that's, right, right. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thanks. I think that's a big part of my story is that I was not an athlete in school, high school, college. You know, in fact, I was quite the opposite. And for somebody, I just an ordinary person who did something extraordinary, and I want to be able to show people that they too can do something like that. It doesn't have to be 52 marathons, 52 weeks, but we can all do something. We're all capable of, like you said, more than we imagine. Yep. There's no unique gene or thing that somebody has to give you in order for you to tackle these things because you're going to learn so much just from the process even if you don't make your goals you're going to learn so much and be transformed by the process of trying to go after those goals so it's definitely something i would encourage because i know you probably get the same thing i get all the time right which is oh i could never do that right i could never do that i could i don't have the time i don't have the whatever right and right and that's that's simply not true anybody can do almost anything. You just have to decide to do it and then execute, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I've I've heard that all the time that somebody said, I'll never be able to qualify for Boston. Um, and now he's like a 315 marathoner. You know, he started out as a 530 marathoner. And I'm like, I, told, I don't mean to say I told you, but I'm proud of you. Because yep. it is possible. So many things are possible. Are you uh, still active with the LA Roadrunners? I 
I'm like with all of the clubs, <laughs> but I do run with them occasionally. I run with the LA Roadrunners. I run with the LA Lakers. I'm still based here in Los Angeles, so the LA Running Club, and I, I try to get around and um, do more um, speaking events with, with all of these clubs because there's so many wonderful clubs out here. And hopefully spread my wings and go across the country and run with more running clubs. But yeah, that's where it all started at the LA Roadrunners, and uh, they were a big, big part of my story on how, how that helped me evolve as a runner and then as a pace leader. And in fact, I was pace leading the LA Roadrunners in 2012. And when I got the call to be in the spirit of the marathon, and it happened to be on the same day as the LA Marathon that year. So first I checked to see if I could do both. Could I go do the Rome Marathon and then come back and do LA? (laughs) But uh, no, it's quite a journey. And I, I think like you mentioned, that's what we have to focus on, that journey that shows where we came from and where we're going and all of the wonderful people that we've met along the way that makes it all worth it yeah absolutely but that's another point to underscore is that never underestimate the impact that you're having on other people just by being there just by talking to them you may not see it right away but you're planting seeds right so the way the club was able to help you you've been able to plant seeds and now with your book and everything and you're planting a lot of people, right? And every once in a while, you'll get that email that says, hey, thank you so much for what you do. You really helped me. And that, that I don't know about you, but that makes it all worthwhile, right? It absolutely does. I mean, I couldn't even believe it the first time somebody told me I was inspiring. I'm like, I, I'm looking around me. I'm like, are you talking to me? <laughs> like, I'm inspiring, <laughs> right? Like, wow, okay, thank you. But we all inspire each other. But it, it really is uh, such a joy to be able to, to give back and share that positive spirit that you have um, and your passion with others. So it really does make a difference. So, You're right. And so good stuff. So, uh, Julia, believe it or not, I lost my dad to um, cancer in uh, so 2013. Sorry. Oh, and it no. Was, um, I'm so sorry. Not, not pancreatic, but uh, uh, biliary, so um, uh, close to pancreatic. But yeah. That same wow. type of yeah, that's the same type of thing. So so I understand maybe not what you're going through, but at least what you're working towards. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the, uh, the pancreatic cancer campaign. Well, there's uh, my new campaign I'm doing for the Hirschberg Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research. And they have a lab here at UCLA, and they are on the cutting edge, on the front lines, and helping us to find a cure and early detection and also um, in Increase the quality of life for those who are currently battling because that helps immensely for those who are uh, facing pancreatic cancer. I know many who have survived for a very long time who were given only six months to live and survived seven years, like my friend Lupe, who just we sadly lost. But she had this incredible will and positive spirit that I believe kept her uh, very strong and full of faith and hope and love for for those seven years as she was battling. But that's a huge part of it. And so, you know, I decided to run for the Hirschberg Foundation this year. They are the official charity for the LA Marathon. And I'm like, well, makes sense. (laughs) They're, They're a perfect fit for me. They're wonderful. And we've set up a campaign called 52 Races for 52 Faces. It's actually, that's the name of the website www.52racesfor52faces.com where you can go to that website if you know somebody who has 
been affected by pancreatic cancer or if they themselves are battling, you can enter in your information and your dedication and I will run for you because not everyone's a runner, but it's a way to get your story out and awareness for a cure and raise money as well if you want to join the fight and we can set you up with a donation page and all of that good stuff. And I would love to even run with you if you want to, if there's a, if there's a chance we can meet. I'll have more of my schedule up there as we go along. Uh, right now, I think I'm on race. What am I on? Race number six is going down this weekend at the uh, Mount Charleston full marathon this weekend. Marathon, lifetime marathon 106. And let's see if I can finally qualify for Boston one more time. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, the journey continues and it's it's been quite a journey and I'm grateful for every single step and every single person that I've met along the way and also every dollar we've raised in search for a cure. That's great. So, just you and I out in a long run talking, what have you learned from this? These sort of journeys are never straight line journeys, right? They're squiggly journeys. So there's always ups and downs. What are the top three things you've taken away from this journey over the last five, six years? Wow, that's a a great question. I think that absolutely one is that I'm stronger than I ever thought I was. And we talked about that. I knew I was strong, but I didn't realize how strong. And um, that's important for people to know that we are all stronger than we think we are. When I finished the 52 marathons in 52 weeks, I was reflecting on what I had learned and experienced. And I think the most important part of it was the connections that I made with the people along the way was absolutely the most beautiful part of this journey. And it still is. These people that I meet, they are my why. And when I'm out there running a marathon for them or their loved one, and I'm facing a tough spot in the race, I think about them and their journey and how much tougher it is for them. I'm just running a marathon. I shouldn't say just, but you know what I mean? They're facing cancer and I'm out here running a marathon mm. for them. So so their mm. battle helps helps me to push through and it also helps them as I'm raising hope and awareness and I'm showing them that, you know, we're not giving up. We don't quit and we just keep going. So that was huge. That was probably the the most beautiful part is these connections that I made. And um, <laughs> the book was probably harder than running all of these marathons as well. I had to use that <laughs> Really, I mean, I, I, I've always been a good writer, but not a great writer. So we, we went through so many drafts and, you know, finally I had to, I reached out for help. And I think that's a big lesson in life. So many people think that they can take on these tasks by themselves and do it all by themselves. And it's like, you know, we're, we're here on this planet together. And there's people out there who want to help you if you just put it out there and ask for help. Because I ended up getting some of the greatest co-writers I could have ever asked for. John Hans, who is an amazing writer and runner, New York Times contributor, and he's got his own uh, line of books out there on endurance and he wrote the book on, on the BAA and, and then Allie Nolan, who is the uh, editor at Runner's World. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I found these people to help me write my book. And so I think that's the, the third takeaway is ask for help. Don't take on too much. And if you do bite off more than you can chew, ask for help and you'll get it. Yeah, and So just be courageous to do that. Yeah, that's a key takeaway. And the way you'll know you need help is because you'll be stuck. So if you've, if mm-hmm. you've like hit a ceiling in something and you can't figure out how to get beyond that sticking point, 
then that's a clear sign that you're missing a person in your life. And that person will get you through that sticking point. That's a classic uh, thing. That's a good lesson. Yeah, it just came to me. So that, thank you for asking that question. I would like to get that message out there yeah. as well for people to know that it's okay to ask for help. It doesn't make you any less of a person. It actually makes you a better person. And you open your heart and you let that help and let people help you because they benefit as well. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Or you could just do what we do, which is uh, just keep running into the same wall over and over again and expecting a different <laughs> result, right? <laughs> I did that 18 times when I was trying to qualify for Boston. How many times? I think it was 18. 18 times or so when I was like, oh, I just thought the more marathons you run, the faster you're going to get. And I, I wasn't even getting under four hours. And, and my dad was like, it's okay. You're doing great. I'm like, hey, maybe I should actually call a coach. Yeah. And so I think it was about Marathon 17. I, I called David Levine, who I freaking ended up marrying him. Could you believe that? <laughs> yeah. That? I asked for help, and I got a husband, and he got a wife, and I qualified for Boston because yeah, so. of his knowledge. So there you go. So Yeah, those are all good things. Although qualifying for Boston is probably the best. Yeah, it's a pretty good <laughs> feeling. I know you just ran it a couple of weeks ago, right? I did. I did. Yeah, it was Congratulations. A Congratulations. Yeah, so you I, look strong I, out there. I, I had mixed feelings about it, but I'm warming up to it now because I looked at my... Um, so for Boston, you can do what's known as a... Um, did you beat your bib number, right? Because it's qualifications <laughs> seated, right? Okay. So if you beat your bib number, that means that's how many places you were faster than where you were seated, right, based on your qualification time. Oh, um, okay. So I, I beat 6,595 people who were seated ahead of me. So I'm, I've, that's one thing I could feel wow. good about. That's congratulations. That's amazing. So, yep. Yep, 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 yep. See if we can get back in for next year. Yeah, um, there you go. Yeah, this is all good. You know, one of the things with these sort of things, and I've done a few of these sort of semi-epic endurance sports uh, things myself just uh, because I want to, but what you find is there's there's a letdown afterwards, right? And one of the big questions, especially as you get older, is you say, okay, what am I going to do next, right? And Dave McGilvery has a great answer for this. And I bet you, this is an interview tip for you. When people ask you, what is your favorite thing or what is the thing you like the best, you, he always says the next one, right? So having that, um, you know, that sort of forward vision of it's a journey that's never done and there's always that next thing to do. But again, as you get older and you've done a lot of stuff, you're always saying, okay, what can I do now? Because you get the sense that you have to beat what you did before, right, to find something new. So how do you have been handling that? Well, that's a great question. And how do I handle it? Like, I've been through many different periods of, I call it post-marathon depression, PMD. It's, it's like PMS, but different. But you imagine a <laughs> letdown after 52 marathons and 57, what I went through after that. I hope you don't mind. I wanted to share something with you from my book that I, you know, another lesson that I learned, and it just kind of sums it up. It's page 319. Actually, I'm just going to read it right out of the book. It's, to me, the greatest lesson I learned was understanding each and every one of us is a work in progress, incomplete in our own quest, but still lightning rods of greatness. So find your light, keep your light shining. If everyone ignites their passion, think of how bright the world will be. So it really sums up the fact that we're never fully complete, even after we finish a big journey like that. So keep that light shining and stay, keep your heart open for other ideas or other goals that come into your mind and to your heart because people 
with goals I've learned are the the happiest people that you've ever met because you've always got something that you're striving for. And when you finish that goal, pick another one. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to be a marathon, but something that you're passionate about and that will keep your light on. Right. And then execute in the now. Don't get carried away with looking too far into the future. Absolutely. Right. I know we, we all do that because we love to see, you know, visualize what we can create and that's all good stuff. But like absolutely try to stay grounded and do what you can today to help you further in your current goal, whatever that is. Like what can you do today to just one thing to get you closer to that goal? So that's right. what I so that's what we do. One foot in front of the other. So you're an inspiration, Julie. Let's uh, move you towards the exit here. Tell us where we can get your book and all the links and the places we need to go find you. Great. Thank you, Chris. Well, you can go to marathongoddess.com and on my website, I have a link to purchase books on Amazon. And there's also a link there if you'd rather buy a signed copy. I can mail you out a signed copy, but it's on my website, marathongoddess.com. Also on Amazon, you can just type in Marathon Goddess. And then, of course, my new campaign called 52 Races for 52Faces.com. And you can see where I'm going to be this year. And hopefully, I'll get a chance to run with you. That would be amazing. So if you've got somebody you know that was has been affected by pancreatic cancer or you are battling it yourself, please reach out to us, pancreatic.org is the name of the, is the website for the Hirschberg Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research. That's pancreatic.org. And we're all in this together and I look forward to connecting with many, many more people and hopefully finding the cure. That's what we really need. So Yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah, so thank you very much for uh, taking some time out of your uh, busy work schedule to chat today. Hopefully you don't have to skip lunch because of me. And, no, it's uh, all good. I look forward to reconnecting with you maybe in my 50 second race, which will be at the LA Marathon next year. Well, maybe we'll I haven't never what... run LA, so we can, maybe I'll yeah. go out there. I actually don't. I don't even have a California marathon with all the great California marathons. I don't even have one. Oh wow! Well, that's a great one. If if you want to come to LA and experience, it's like a tour of LA. You know, you start at the Dodger Stadium, go through Hollywood go through Beverly Hills and come down to the beach. It's really fun. That course, I, I it's not easy, but it's fun. It's, it's a very fun course. So it's their 35th anniversary and one of my favorite big city races. So come yeah, right. on down. Hometown race. <laughs> Hometown race for you. Yeah, right. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for talking again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. All right? Great. Yes, thank you so All much. Right. I really appreciate the time. Okay. Take care. All right, cheers. We got this. We got this. We got this. Yeah, we got this. All right. We do. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. All right, you ready to have some fun? Fun? If you uh, have me on 1.5 speed, you better slow it down because there's a lot of content in this uh 1,326 words, so you should slow it down. Got to listen closely here. We're going to school. We're going to school. The wonderful English language. Have you ever wondered why English is such a wonderful, wacky language? Why there are three or four different words for everything? Why it is at the same time simple and complex in its rules and grammar and spelling? It is that way because of its rich history. 
So let me begin by telling you a story. In 1857, the British Philological Society, yeah, a bunch of guys sitting around talking about language, because, you know, the British, decided to create a dictionary with all, all the English words in it. And they figured it would be what? 10,000 words should take about, yeah, seven to 10 years on the outside. So they came up with a plan. They came up with a rigorous plan, because, you know, the British, to find all these words. They had volunteers read every scrap of English literature in existence since 1150. And the volunteers would write down on a small slip of paper the word, its source, its usage, and the quote. And then they would put all these together into the dictionary. Piece of cake, right? But they bit off a bit more than they could chew. At one point, they had over 2.5 million little slips of paper. The first complete edition of the dictionary, this dictionary, wasn't ready until 1928, 71 years later. And at that point, they had over 400,000 words captured and defined. And this would become, yes, the Oxford English Dictionary. So you can see that English is a very rich language. Let me tell you another story. It's story day here at the Run Run Live podcast. In 1786, there was a British guy in India who was studying Sanskrit to learn more about the Indian legal system because, you know, the British. This guy, Sir William Jones, also happened to be a Greek and a Latin scholar. And when he started studying Sanskrit, he started to notice that it was quite like Greek and Latin. And the words in the building blocks, they were all very similar. And from this comparison, he and others were able to determine that Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Persian, Celtic, and indeed most of the European languages were derived from an original Indo-European language. And this original language was spoken by a people in the area of Ukraine around 4,000 years ago. And they were a talented bunch because they spread out from their homeland to the edges of the continent and brought their language with them. Now, before you go all racist on me, we're not talking about a genetic group. We're talking about a linguistic group, although there is some overlap. And one of the other branches of Indo-European is German. Guess who spoke the old German? Anglo-Saxons. You know who else spoke old German? The Scandinavians. All right, now we're getting somewhere, right? Now let's look at that timeline of the English language in England. So how do we get to modern English? Well, first we had to go through Old English and Middle English. Bear with me, it all comes together. Originally, the British Isles were populated by the Celts. Then the Romans marched through under Claudius and the Antonines and Hadrian and all of them. They all figured out they'd settled there in Celtic England, and they spread a bit of Roman around. They were there for a couple hundred years, but they had a rough patch when the Western Roman Empire fell, and they went into those pesky Dark Ages. It was a bit of a zombie apocalypse for the, for the British Romans. So why couldn't the Romano-British just hang out and start their own little Roman state? Well, you see, 
the Roman state was based on a standing army, and that army was taken away from England. So there is another character, another story, a character with one of the top 10 historical best names, a British Roman named Magnus Maximus. Magnus Maximus. He declared himself Emperor of Gaul in 383 because, you know, Romans. And he didn't last long. He overreached and got spanked by Theodosius I. But the net result was most of the army was pulled out of England. And the Romans were left to fend for themselves in, in Britain. So legend has it that these Romano-Britons were getting raided by the Picts from the north. So they called in some Anglo-Saxon mercenaries from the continent to help out. And that didn't end up being a good idea because the Anglo-Saxons decided they'd just take the whole country. Now this is where Old English was spoken. You may think, oh, you mean like Shakespeare. No, Shakespeare is modern English. A bit archaic, but modern. So then you may say, oh, you mean like Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. No, that's Middle English. Old English was essentially German. You could not understand Old English. But still, many of the most common words in our modern English are still Old English words. Old English wasn't written down much. We have Beowulf and some royal charters, but the Dark Age Anglo-Saxons weren't super literate. They did more sword swinging than writing. There were not a lot of words in that language either. It was like, a bit like a toddler who calls every animal with fur and four legs a dog. Like all German dialects, they had a lot of compound words, like the word wilderness, which literally means wild deer place. Deer being a catch-all term for wild animals. So wilderness means wild animal place. They also had that thing where the words change depending on the tense of the verb. Not just male and female tense, like modern Romance languages. No, 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 no. The nouns would have different inflections or endings for past, present, future, etc. They didn't need pronouns. And word order wasn't as important because you just knew by the noun whether it was yesterday's horse or tomorrow's horse. That's Old English. And it seems that Old English wasn't influenced much by pre-existing Celtic or Latin. It came in with the Anglo-Saxons and replaced what already was there. The next big thing that happened to the language was that boatloads of homicidal gingers from Scandinavia showed up. Yeah, the Vikings. Over the course of a couple decades, they settled in the north of England. Remember, Old Norse and Old German were distant cousins. These guys, when they weren't raping, pillaging, slaving, they could understand each other's words a little bit. Not the grammar, but the words. So Old English borrowed a bunch of Old Norse words, and this is where some of our richness comes from. Instead of picking one of two similar words, they just keep both. And this is also where they started to chuck out all those noun tenses and instead use pronouns and verbs. Basically, they were simplifying the language so they could talk to each other across the different dialects. Okay, great. So what's Middle English? Middle English starts when a new bunch of ex-Vikings, now called Normans, and living in France, took advantage of a secession crisis and defeated the last Anglo-Saxon king, Harold, in 1066. And by the way, Harold, 
He wasn't really an Anglo-Saxon anyhow. He was from another Scandinavian usurper, Canute. But by this point, they had all intermarried so much, anybody could trace their line back to Alfred the Great. The Normans, they came over, they took over, and they made everybody speak French for a while. Now remember, French is a Romance language, i.e. derived from Latin spoken in the Roman province of Gaul before the Franks kicked out the Visigoths. And this means it is from the same Indo-European roots as Old English and Old Norse. See the pattern? They just kept mixing together different versions of the old Indo-European languages. And it turns out English was a very resilient language. Instead of being wiped out by the Norman French, it absorbed them, and the pattern held. Where there were two words that meant the same thing, they just keep both words and keep simplifying the grammar to squeeze them all in. And from Middle English to Modern English, there was a major shift in the vowels to get where we are now. And you see English words with too many letters in them and silent letters. Part of this is because they used to be pronounced. Part of it was that scribes were trying to give you a hint as to how it was supposed to be pronounced by adding those extra letters. And that, my friends, is a short overview of why English is such a wonderful, wacky, and rich language. It mixed German, Latin, Norse, French, Latin again from the church, Greek again when science came back, and French a couple more times to get where it is. And all these languages had a common ancestor. And this is why English is so much fun. Because you have four words to choose from for everything you want to say. Aren't you glad you came to class today? And I told you all this why? Because, you know, me. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you did that thing where you strike the goddess pose in your underwear in front of the bathroom mirror, and though no one was watching, we won't judge you, and uh, you have come to the end of the Run Run Live podcast episode 4-409. Keep up the good work. We have been having a cold and rainy spring in New England, and every time I hit one of these long, hard tempo runs at a 45-degree drizzle, I mutter a little curse to the gods. Why couldn't we have this weather at one of my target races? I've been working in my garden for the last couple of weeks as well. I started some seeds earlier, but the weather has been so cold that everything is quite stunted. We're going to have a bad garden season. I got some tomatoes, some beans, some squash in. We'll see what comes up. You know, there's nothing like a warm, garden-fresh tomato on a warm August afternoon. It's part of the rhythm of life. I should be able to execute a decent race at Vermont. I'm still light, hovering around 170 pounds. I'm still hitting my tempo paces in the mid-sevens. And like I said, on paper, it's a lock. We'll see. Wish me luck. Send whatever universal karma you can. I also accepted an invitation to pace a half marathon in Pennsylvania at the end of July. It's the Conquer the Canyon Marathon and Half Marathon. And I will be the alternate pacer for the two-hour half marathon with Greg. Light duty. And it looks like a pretty course on a rail trail that winds through a river valley. It's about a six-hour drive for me. And this pacing outfit is called Beast Pacers. 
So if you want to be a pacer, they have races all over the country, and they they typically will comp you the entry. They'll pay for your entry. So if you're looking to pick up your 50 states or you know you just want to do some adventuring, that could be a vehicle to get there, the beast pacing. One more of my favorite English words before you go. So stick with me. I know there's a lot of old English for you. The old slash Middle English word for window or opening was thorough. Now, you may be familiar with a compound word that we still use this word in. It combines the word nose and that word for window, thorough. And you may have guessed that compound word is nostril. Literally means nose window. Isn't that great? nose window. (laughs) So Julie's story is a good one. On the one hand, it's familiar to us, the classic hero's journey, overcoming challenges to become the champion. On the other hand, I think it verifies a useful truth. If you just decide to do something, you can change the world. At least you're a little part of that world. You don't need permission You just do it and let the details sort of figure themselves out, and they will. It's not goal-setting. It's not achievement. It's more like directing or freeing the universal energy that is in each of us. So look inside yourself now, and, you know, what do you see there? How do you let that energy free? And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die so ned he laughed so hard it made him cry well my friends you did that thing where you strike the goddess pose in your underwear in front of the bathroom (laughs) let's take that over again all right let's pick up let's pick up 30 seconds of background noise shh quiet All right, that'll do.